Transportation is a journey connecting us in our everyday lives. This podcast series, TRB's Transportation Explorers, takes you on that journey with meaningful conversations with the experts behind the research. They often have an early eye on how we'll build the transportation of tomorrow. On today's show, we talk to Secretary of Transportation Anthony Fox about equity in transportation. Even if you can solve the the substantial problem of how do you fund major infrastructure buildouts in in cities, I still think it may, it is a hard and important case to understand how you how you build those connections in ways that um, that are harmonious with an inclusive city. Hi, I'm Elaine Farrell. And I'm Paul Mackey with the Transportation Research Board of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine based in Washington, DC. And we're here today with former Secretary of the US Department of Transportation, Anthony Fox. He was also the mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina and is currently the Chief Policy Officer at Lyft. We wanna talk with you about inequality. George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, and many other news stories this year have really shined a light on the major uphill battle the U.S. and the world still have to go on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Transportation is in no way excluded from that discussion. Maybe a good place to start, Secretary Fox, is we've heard you speak about growing up as a, as a child, uh, as a youth in Charlotte, North Carolina, and how transportation affected you at an early age when a, uh, an interstate or, or maybe multiple freeways came through and sort of broke up some of the, the neighborhood and the, the spaces you used to play in. It seems like a, a good starting point. Is this sort of where the story with equ- equity and transportation starts with you? Yeah, it's, it's a great, great starting point. Um, I actually grew up with my grandparents in Charlotte and they purchased their home in 1961, about 10 years before I came along. And what I didn't appreciate as much growing up was that the home they bought in Charlotte, which at the time was, uh, it was a nice neighborhood. Uh, It it connected well to other parts of the city, but uh, there were plans even at the time that they bought the home to, uh, to create uh, two, two freeway intersections um, nearby, uh, the intersection of I-85 and I-77, which are major interstates on the Eastern Seaboard, uh, as well as Highway 16, which is, a, is more of a state, state highway um, in, in North Carolina. So that, those decisions had been sort of baked into, um, in, into the, the planning process, but they weren't uh, they weren't constructed at that time. So my grandparents move in. Within a few years, these highways start to bisect um, the community that they had come uh, to to become a part of. And, uh, and and when I grew up, what I saw were were the were the out, outcomes of those decisions. I saw the fully fully developed freeways. Um, and uh, you know, I didn't realize it as much at the time, but those freeways were were walls. Um, they were, they were literal walls that, um, that sort of binded me into the neighborhood and, and also prevented me from seeing very much beyond it. How did that sort of morph into your, your professional career as you started to, to move along and grow older, do you think? Yeah, well, it wasn't until I, I, I started on city council in, uh, 
And I started doing zoning cases as a member of the council. We had zoning cases on the third Monday every, every month. And um, occasionally I would go out to a site and I would, I would stand there with a developer or a member of the community who was concerned about a potential zoning case. And, and it, it all of a sudden made sense to me how much our built environment plays a role in, in both what we see and who we come into contact with. Um, you know, I'd have a developer show me a, a barren piece of land that would uh, at some point in time have a, a group of group of live work um, uh, spaces on a, on, a, on a little avenue with a movie theater at the end and a hotel on the other end. And they had it all planned out in terms of how people were supposed to move in that space. And so it really registered with me that while while we all think we make a bunch of independent decisions to go someplace or you know how we get from one place to another, those decisions are actually the product of a lot of thought. And it took me back to growing up in my neighborhood, um, which was to, which is to say that my neighborhood was never intended to be a destination. It was intended to be a pass through point. And the people who lived in my neighborhood, uh, were uh, were invisible to uh, to most travelers as a result. I guess getting to the to the conversation around equity, um, it, was there some way do you think that uh, that maybe your neighborhood had less of a voice or had a different kind of voice than other places that maybe across the country were also being uh, developed with with interstate highways and and other pass throughs. No, I, I think, um, first of all, you know, again, my grandparents moved into the neighborhood in 1961. Uh, four years later, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act, which for the first time uh, gave meaning to the right to vote for so many African-Americans across the South and across the country. And um, prior to that, though, you know, Eisenhower's highway system was, was funded in the 1950s planning decisions happened in the late 50s, early 60s. And by 1965, dirt was turning uh, and many freeways were already on the ground by that time. So um, you're talking about decisions that were made without the entire community at the table in, 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 in the large uh, number of cases. And you know, it's not just Charlotte. Um, we could talk about the Claiborne Expressway in, in Louisiana down in New Orleans. Uh, we could talk about um, you know, I-10 uh, out uh, in California, in Los Angeles, uh, I-5 up in Seattle. There's so many examples around this country. I could go to almost any community and find them that the, that, that the, uh, the interstate highway system, and I would dare say our rail system, as well as our airport system, all of them uh, were designed mostly on the backs of poor and minority communities. That being said, do you have ideas for research you would like to see in the field of transportation equity? Any specific things that you think transportation researchers can do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot that needs to happen retrospectively, and I think there's a lot that needs to happen prospectively. First, I don't think we fully understand the, the extent to which this problem of design was uh, was visited upon so many communities. And I almost think we need to go back and excavate the, the factual detail around it to fully understand it. Um, it had not only um, 
you know, spatial uh, dimensions in terms of, uh, of separating people, um, community from community, but it also had economic implications. Um, many in, in the early years of the highway system uh, and the urban renewal program, which was kind of a um, uh, ran sidecar to the highway interstate development uh, program, uh, where many low-income minority communities across the country were raised, literally destroyed. Um, for many years, there was no adequate remuneration program for those communities. So not only did the communities lose their sense of place, um, not only were they the people who remained in some cases left with a fraction of the neighborhood that they that they initially um, initially bought into, but also many families were left economically worse off as a result of it. They weren't even given adequate um, uh, funding uh, for uh, for uh, finding a new place to live. So uh, this was really um, a travesty in a lot of ways. But again, it wasn't just the interstate system. Using that as an example, um, in the you know 1920s, 1930s, as our airport system was being developed, I could make the same point. Um, and the rail system has always been uh, something, which is why we we say that people live on the other side of the tracks. That's always been a, an issue. So um, you know, I think we need to really understand the extent of it. You know, it's almost like a lot of colleges and universities are now um, going back and they're looking at their ties to slavery. I think in many ways, the transportation system needs to have a, a similar look back. Although I think most of um, the infrastructure we use today has built been built in more modern times. I think there's a, there's a similar story regarding it. Um, prospectively, there's a lot we can do. Um, again, in many cases, we're taking decades, in some cases, centuries of infrastructure development, and we're stuck with what we have. But it doesn't mean that we have to necessarily replicate the same design decisions and the same ways of, of, of separating communities. Uh, and in fact, I think it's an imperative in the 21st century for our country to have a more inclusive idea of how infrastructure can bring us together. Just like in a previous generation, um, you know, whether it's by intent or, or, or by effect, the decisions separated us along racial lines, along economic lines. Um, in the 21st century, I think we, have a need to, we need to have a much more inclusive vision of how infrastructure gets built. So how do you do that? The first thing is, um, I think you have to look at the leadership of, of our departments of transportation across the country. Um, in many cases in states, you have state departments of transportation. Um, they are in large part um, less than, than diverse and less than reflective of the communities that they serve. And I think that's a great starting point is ensuring that there is, um, there's good diverse representation on the state transportation boards as well as the departments themselves. Um, and then I think we should be doing a lot more to um, open up the um, the spigot on public input. Um, I had an opportunity as transportation secretary to travel to um, to Denmark and to see uh, Gail Architects come up with an entirely new way uh, of of doing public input, where instead of having a few meetings at the whatever the government center is in a given place, that you actually go out to the coffee shops and to the neighborhood meetings and you you do you you build public input much more organically based on where people already gather 
and uh, you don't use transportation, uh, transportation ease, as I call it. Uh, you, you use plain English to, to solicit input from people. Uh, and so I think there are input aspects that we can change. I think we need to inventory our infrastructure deficit as a country. And there are actually entire projects that I don't think are useful to us anymore. Um, and that we should consider tearing down some, uh, some, some projects that have been built in the past that have, uh, that have outlived their utility. And that also, frankly, are remnants of an era where those divisions are still in place. And it also would help us tackle our infrastructure deficit by removing some of the some of the cost of, of that infrastructure deficit. And then finally, as we build new, um, you know, I think we have to do a much better job uh, of, of identifying location, um, of um, building with a purpose of, of inclusion, uh, and uh, also thinking uh, about uh, making sure that projects that are built in the future are built uh, in an equitable fashion. And that means um, you know, you have sections of cities, for example, I'll pick on Georgetown in Washington, D.C., where uh, the subway system was famously not, uh, not connected. Uh, we can't afford to do those types of things anymore. We have to, you know, if you're going to be part of a city, uh, you need to be connected in every way possible. And so we need, to, uh, we need to ensure that we're making those decisions well, as well as looking at, you know, places like Baltimore, where, uh, you know, there's a light rail project, the red line, that really could have done a lot of good in connecting um, lower income parts of Baltimore to uh, the economy of Baltimore. And uh, that project has, um, has stalled over many, many years. So I, I just think there are projects that we haven't done that would make a lot of sense to put on the table to get done. And there are also uh, projects that were done that we probably need to take offline. Um, and uh, involve the full community in, in terms of making that happen. Is there a way, you know, one real, one real issue is getting people to the necessities, the essentials that they need. And is there, are there better ways that transportation companies could, uh, could partner or work with food distribution centers or, or grocery stores? Uh, because food we, we've seen food as a, certainly an issue this year in 2020 with, with COVID-19, but that seems to be a big issue. And I think it's one you've talked about in, in some of your yeah. past speeches. Yeah, I think food, you know, food availability and, and you know, uh, I, I, I grew up in the, the part of the city of Charlotte that I grew up in was, was full of potato chips and, uh, and uh, Twinkies, not, not so full of fresh food and vegetables. And, uh, my grandparents actually drove um, across town to uh, to a more affluent part of the city to buy their groceries because the the food stores nearby just weren't weren't adequate. Uh, and this is in the 1970s, 1980s. And they were lucky um, they had a car, but many people didn't, and they were stuck with what was close by. So this problem is a real problem. I think there are two dimensions of of it, though. Um, there is the 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 problem of um, you know, the decisions that grocery stores make about where to locate, um, which I think is a, an underlying problem that transportation can, can in some ways um, mask, but still needs to be addressed. And uh, I did a fair amount of looking at that when I was mayor of Charlotte. Um, and, and what happens is, is that uh, most, most, uh, most retailers of any type 
will look at the uh, median income of a given area and they'll make a decision about whether that's where they want to be. But what a lot of studies um, have also shown is that if you have a sufficiently dense area, even of low income people, that the income density is actually equivalent to a more wealthy area. So um, there are business cases to be made for uh, grocery store locations and pharmacy locations and other types of retail that should actually be coming into these communities. And I think that's, uh, that's part of the story. The transportation part of the story is that, uh, yeah, absolutely, transportation can connect us to places that are beyond our reach, uh, whether it's school, whether it's, it's uh, you know, food, et cetera. And uh, companies like Lyft, the company that I'm, I'm currently working for, um, we actually do that. Um, we, we have our, uh, organizations that we work with to connect people who live in food deserts to um, adequate uh, uh, food stores so that they can live ha ha happy, happier and healthier lives. Um, I think there is a role for those types of partnerships, which currently are more uh, private to nonprofit partnerships to be uh, supported with, uh, with the help of transit agencies, with the help of, uh, of, of local communities. Um, I think there is definitely a market for uh, doing more at scale than we currently are doing. But I think you know, if I were sitting in a mayor's seat right now, uh, I'd be doing that, but I'd also be trying to figure out how to fix the underlying uh, problem of the business case to these retailers. Policymakers often want to create multimodal cities, but they often will say we don't have the time or the money to do so. What else can they do to overcome those challenges other than looking at those types of partnerships? Yeah, um, it, we're, we're, we're reaching a, a critical point, I think, on this question of, of how do you connect uh, places that have historically been disconnected uh, or only marginally connected um, to the rest of a city, to the rest of an economy. Um, and I, look, I think you, you take the case of Austin, Texas, this last election se season, which um, proposed a, a bold, I think it was a $6 billion build out of, um, of, of multimodal transportation, uh, everything from micromobility to transit. Um, and I, I think it's a, it, it's a model that I'm hearing more, more and more places talk about um, is, 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 is finally calling the question on a multimodal future and cities taking um, more in into their own uh, hands in terms of, uh, of of leadership and and frankly, um, you know that's how it's going in terms of trying to attract federal dollars too. Is uh, these big bold programs the one that LA did a few years ago with the two cent tax? The one that that Austin just did. Even my native Charlotte is um, discussing another six billion dollar uh, program. Issue uh, is still going to be under the surface and fundamental to whether we as a country can not only live up to our, our, uh, our creed, but also whether we will have the sustainability as a country um, in a time when people are questioning whether our economy is fair, whether our democracy is fair, whether our systems are fair overall. I think it is incredibly important that our transportation system 
um, catch up and, and, and actually get a bit of a head of this, uh, this set of conversations. So what kinds of things can you do? Yeah, you can, um, you know, I think for one thing, the federal government has to rethink its relationship to public transit. Um, back in the Reagan years, the, the, uh, the decision was made to eliminate federal operating support for transit agencies. And um, now there's capital support, so you can buy buses and train sets, you can build new light rail lines. But um, when it comes to transit agencies that are really, you know, they're, they're working off of a fraction of the ridership that they were a year ago, uh, they're hurting and uh, trying to shore them up is something the federal government should do because there are entire families out in this country for whom uh, jobs are not available, education is not available, um, training is not available if they don't have a transit trip to take. So I think it's critically important for equity for that to happen. But even beyond this crisis, I think there are things the federal government should be encouraging. For example, you know, a student who comes from a low-income family who wants to take a course that's going to provide that student with additional skills, um, we should be encouraging that by not making that student have to pay for that transit trip. You know, that cost might be the difference between a student who becomes a great artist or a great whatever and, and a student who does it. And I, you know, I think we should be thinking about transportation as a as a uh, as as a uh, uh, a crack open uh, a crack in the door, so to speak, that may give people opportunities that they don't have. I think, as I talked about before, revisiting our infrastructure deficit. You know, it gets higher and higher every year because we never take anything off the list. We just keep adding to the list. So let's start taking that list down. Let's start looking, um, you know, much more. Uh, rigorously at whether all of the projects that are on that that list of projects, some of which have been there for four decades, whether we need to have all those projects on the list that we consider critical to the future. And then as we build new things, let's build them correctly this time. Let's build them in ways that are more harmonious with, with community. Let's try to uh, spread out where some of them are located and, and take on the tough conversations. Uh, and, and frankly, I think a, a, a final thing I would say is that uh, this conversation about equity, um, I think it happens at every level of government, but it happens much more intensely in my view at the local level. And the more we push dollars into local communities and give them the real ability to, to make projects happen, I think we put that discussion where it, it most likely can be uh, litigated out through community conversation effectively, and that's at the local level. So I've also been a big proponent of, of making sure that our, our, our MPO system and our RPO systems are, um, are regional in nature, that they are connected to communities of economic interest. We should be putting a whole lot more money into the MPO RPO system. We should be letting, uh, getting those systems set up so that they can actually manage and build projects. And we should also expect that the conversations between urban and rural communities and uh, suburban and urban communities, that that is the place, that's the repository where we can most effectively litigate those questions out from community from, uh, to community. Well, former U.S. Transportation Secretary Anthony Fox, we thank you so much for your time today. I would say the future Transportation Secretary has his or her hands 
full if they take up just the list of things you've talked about here today. Um, and we wish you well also at Lyft. I think Lyft is in a very interesting spot as always, but, uh, but when the economy comes back and, and people are looking for Lyft rides a little more than they are right now, it should be interesting to see how you all fit in. Interesting indeed. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been great to join you. If you'd like to learn more about Anthony Fox, be sure to attend the Dean Lecture at the TRB Annual Meeting on Monday, January 25th. You can also check out our website, trb.org, for more information about equity in transportation. TRB's Transportation Explorers is a production of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Ben Brown composed our theme music. The podcast is produced by Paul Mackey and me, Elaine Farrell, and edited by me. Thanks again for tuning into TRB's Transportation Explorers. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. See you next time on the transportation journey.